This is a podcast from Rover. Rex Today. With NetSpeed. Rural, urban and everywhere in between. Now I'm a farmer and I'm digging, 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 digging. G'day there everyone, how are we getting on? Welcome into the Rex Daily Podcast. It is Thursday the 10th of August. I'm Dom George and coming up in just a moment we're going to be talking about our olive industry and our olive oil industry. I see that yields down about a third uh, in terms of local production, we'll speak with Emma Glover from Olives New Zealand about that. And then we're going to be having a chat with Julian Ashby from Beef and Lamb New Zealand. There's some new research out which is showing that the scale and the pace of sheep and beef lamb being purchased for forestry is even higher than first thought. More details later on in the programme. <laughs> Well, yesterday we spoke about truffle farmers and the problems that they're having with the wet weather. Today it is the turn of the olive industry and uh, joining us now is Olives New Zealand Executive Officer Emma Glover. Emma, lovely to have you on the programme. How are you doing? Good, thank you, Dom. Great. Extreme weather and the spread of disease. That has seen some North Island olive growers ditch harvesting altogether this season. This reads like a bloody tragedy, Emma. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's. We're at a time where, um, I guess, the international olive oil prices are going through the roof, and we would love to be promoting as much New Zealand extra virgin olive oil as possible. However, the volumes are just down tragically this year, um, due to such a wet season. Following on last year was such a wet season too. So two years in a row now. Now we're backing up. That's the last thing anyone needs, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned the international prices there, and I do note that uh, there was heat and drought hitting the Mediterranean earlier this year, especially in Spain, and that resulted in a smaller supply. What other parts of the world and what other aspects are affecting the international prices at the moment? I think it's just the seasons over there as well. Um, they Their volumes are down. So... From internationally, especially Europe, when the volumes are down, they supply such huge volumes across the whole world. So the demand is increasing, which increases the price. Um, and it just um, for New Zealand, some of our um, some of our oil also comes out of Australia. So Australia is also having the same problems that New Zealand are having with wet seasons and um, hard harvest. Wow, lower yields all around. That's uh, yeah, okay. So it doesn't take much of an expert to figure out the supply demand uh, equation there, does it? No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when you've had the rain that we've had, the whole, you know, the whole, I guess, the whole North Island that the whole country's really had, um, this year we can't get onto the groves. A lot of the guys, even after they've harvested, couldn't, haven't been able to get back into the groves yet to start to spray for disease. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah. Um, So there's about 300-odd olive farms um, around uh, the country and um, that harvest is March through to basically July. So uh, the harvest has effectively uh, wound up and that's how I guess you'd come to the conclusion that uh, the yield is low. Yeah, so what basically what happens is that I I um, run a certification program um, based on the International Olive Council level. So we get oil sent into us to get certified. Um, when there's when that application comes in or when the oil come in, we also get feedback on the volumes that have been produced and the yield percentages. Um, and it's just everything. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that haven't harvested this year. Um, New Zealand, in terms of olive industry, is really small. Um, 
and our groves are small compared to overseas. So there's a lot of lifestyle blocks, a lot of small groves. And when they don't harvest because it's just not worthwhile, that's that's lots of little lots of lots of little oil is a lot ends up being a lot of volume for us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I, look, I've spoken to a couple of the, um, you know, the, I guess you'd call them boutique olive grove uh, owners and, uh, you know, and, and some of them, you know, uh, press their own oil and things like that. And you're right. I mean, they're not large operations at all. Um, and, you know, you get a scenario like this. And I imagine you write the season off, don't you, effectively? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Everyone is just looking forward to next year right now. I mean, we've... we've um, and just preparing their grove, or hopefully once they get into their groves, to prepare them for next year. So just looking forward, um, this year is, is what it is, and we just have to kind of move on. Now, of course, the uh, ramifications of all the, the wet weather has been, you know, fungal fruit disease, which has affected around a third of local olive production. Can you tell us a bit about about that? Um, so the, the predominant one that's, that's I guess, beard its head in the last couple of years um, it's always been one in the industry is anthrax nose um, which what it's a, it's a fungal disease that gets into the trees and over time it affects the fruit so we um, across the industry depending on the style of harvest or the style of grove management that you use whether you're organic or inorganic um, there, there's different spray methods that can be used um, mainly to protect the tree so when it's wet it protects the trees, the leaves, the fruit from that disease, like the water getting into the disease Right. Um, but what is happening, because we can't get into the groves to spray the disease is then being able to get into the trees, into the fruit, into the trees um, and you can't harvest or you can't press fruit that have been affected by anthrax nodes and it, once it's that comes really fast. And from what I understand, there's a lot of groves around the country, especially in the North Island, that have never seen this in their groves before. No, so um, a lot of groves haven't um, haven't been affected for it by it before, or if they have, it's of such small scale it hasn't. They've managed. It's been easily to manage, um, but it's on a big it's on a big scale now, which is which is really hard, and it's really hard to bring it back into a management level um, to keep going. Mm. So we just we just need to be able to get it. I mean, the guys just need to be able to get into the groves so they can give a really good prune um, and, and start their grove management program and get it up and going again. Yeah, and as you say, it's that cyclical nature of it and that's been the tremendously difficult part of the last couple of cycles is the fact that that preparation and all the bits that you need to do, you know, much like a vineyard or, or whatever, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, that, the, the work you do at that stage is, you know, the yield depends on it, doesn't it? So it's obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a real backs against the wall scenario here. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's so important. The more you... And, and we've um, done projects, and we're very aware of it. The more, the more, I guess you manage your growth. Um, obviously, the better the rewards are, and that comes in volume and yields um, of fruit. So we just we just need to keep kind of put our heads down and, and move forward. Yeah, I guess there's nothing, I mean, when you look for solutions here, Emma, there's not a lot that can be done. I mean, weather's weather, right? I mean, you just can't, you know, it's Cyclone Gabriel, for God's sake. I mean, you know, you can't do much about that. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the good, I guess if you want to take a positive 
positive about it is that you know many parts of the South Island have had a really good had a, did have a lovely dry summer, so they have got um, they've got some good quality fruit that have come out. Um, New Zealand oil tends to be kind of an intense oil, so really strong in flavour. Um, what because we haven't had the sunshine hours this year, what what is showing really um, I guess really significantly is that the oil is a lot more mild or medium, mm. um, which means people that aren't so sure about how wonderful, like about strong olive oils, this is their, this is kind of the year for them to, to get into New Zealand extra virgin olive oil and, um, and, and appreciate it because the flavours won't be as strong this year. Oh, okay. That's re- I yeah, guess, yeah, so you've got to look for silver linings, don't you? And I guess, you know, yeah, that, that, that's one that appeals to a broad base, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like the, the guys that have the olive mark stickers on their bottles and on their branding, I mean, that, that means it's been certified in New Zealand extra virgin olive oil. It's kind of our guarantee to make it that, that it is exactly what it is. And um, these flavours will be great. So, yes, the international prices are going up. Yes, the cost of production in New Zealand is going up. However, this is potentially the year to be trying. If, you, if you're not already using New Zealand extra virgin olive oil, this is kind of the year to do it. I okay. That, yeah, yeah. That, well, that's really interesting. And because, I mean, the thing is, Emma, as well, you know, this is a, uh, as you've said, we're a small producer on the global stage, but I think around the world it's uh, starting to get a bit of recognition that we do produce a, uh, you know, a, a certain quality of uh, of extra virgin olive oil. Absolutely. I mean, there's, 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 there's so many different types of oil with extra virgin being the prime premium product, which is what New Zealand produces. Um, and then a lot of overseas, a lot of European countries then get olive oil and, you know, virgin olive oil. So they're not, there's different refining processes. Once they've put it through the press once, which is all we do in New Zealand, they then put it through and through again and get different qualities and less and less qualities. So right. um, we are definitely on the world map for being a premium olive oil producer. Um, and we do do have um, intense usually on a normal in a normal year would have lovely intense kind of flavored oils um, this year they just they, they are still beautiful oils but the the flavor profiles are quite different right yeah the intensity's yeah. Uh, gone out of it a little bit yeah do you um, obviously you, you work with the certification side of things do you also uh, work in other uh, parts of the olive industry yourself uh, no I don't I've um, I've only recently started with um, Olives New Zealand um, but I'm, I'm right now doing our awards so we've, we've got our award coming up next month um, to, to you know to I guess to celebrate New Zealand's extra virgin olive oil Oh great, oh fantastic, yeah, yeah I think I might have spoken to uh, the winner last year or something like that as well, that's, that's brilliant that the industry is being celebrated like that, if people want more info yeah. about that Emma, is it on your website? Yeah, the best to go to our website which is um, www.com olivesnz.org.nz Wonderful, good stuff. Well listen um, thank you so much for your time, really do appreciate it thanks for the update and uh, all the best to the olive oil and uh, olive producers out there in New Zealand clearly it's been tough but um, you know, uh, as we said there's not a lot that can be done other than uh, get ready for next season Absolutely, thank you Dom that's great. Rex Today with NetSpeed, connecting the country and now with mobile phones
Well, here at Rural Exchange, we recommend NetSpeed as your provider for connectivity. Internet and phone supported by NetSpeed's local New Zealand team. Give the NetSpeed team a call. They'll work with you to find the best solution, and you can get them online as well at netspeed.net.nz. Rex Today. With NetSpeed. Internet till the cows come home. All right, here's an interesting one for you. There's a bit of new research out, and it actually shows that the scale and pace of sheep and beef land purchased for forestry is even higher than first thought. To find out a little bit more on this, uh, we're going to uh, Beef and Lamb New Zealand Chief Insights Officer Julian Ashby. Good to have you on the show, Julian. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Tom. Yeah, really good. So tell us about the research. Was this commissioned by Beef and Lamb, or how did it? Uh, who, who's behind it? Yep, that's right. No, so we've been doing this report for a couple of years. We've been tracking how much um, sheep and beef farms have been getting bought up for conversion into forestry. First started it about three years ago and just been tracking it year on year. And this latest um, research has just come through and, um, as you say, it shows us that uh, it's been higher than we thought. In 2021, um, we had previously been calculating 50,000 hectares of of sheep and beef farmland going into forestry, but it was actually 63,000 hectares, which was 66% higher than in 2020. So massive, massive amounts of land going into forestry. It did slow down a little bit in 2022 as there was a bit of uncertainty around policy changes. About 35,000 hectares went into forestry. Um, But we know that there's a number of farms that are sitting with the Overseas Investment Office, so about 10 to 15,000 hectares there. We're expecting the number could go up as high as 50,000 hectares sold last year as well. Wow. Um, So this is basically what we're talking here is land use change from pastoral farming to large-scale forestry. That's essentially it in a nutshell in terms of what what we're actually looking at here. Yeah, that's right. Massive sales of of, uh, uh, sheep and beef farmland in the Tarafiti Gisborne region as well, and then just continuing high sales of sheep and beef farms in the lower east coast, way up the region. And it's now totaled about 200,000 hectares over the last five years. Um, which I just did some calculations the other day. It's now equal to or larger than 15 of our top cities. If you converted all 15 of our top larger cities into pine trees, that's how much has gone now. That's extraordinary. And I imagine that uh, people hearing that will be uh, either not surprised or rather alarmed and I say those ends of the extremes because uh, there are groups and people out there who are saying I told you so that this was the case and uh, then there'll be others that kind of knew it was going on but maybe you know the scale and those numbers that you just outlined Julian uh, would be uh, you know cause for alarm for for others I suspect. Absolutely I mean what surprised us, I suppose, is that um, we knew about the farm sales going through, but it's at the other end of the pipeline with actual new plantings going in that we've been um, not caught off guard, but we had heard that there was a, a bit of a slowdown in seeding, seedling stock and labour wasn't there to support such high levels of new planting. But um, MPI have just put out a report of their own and it shows that 64,000 hectares was planted last year of new planting, so it's far higher than we've been estimating. Um, and now we're starting to see an impact on our livestock numbers a national flock of sheep is down to 25.3 million, another 400,000 down on the year before. And we think that number's going to keep growing even further. So, yeah, the scale of change, far more as well than uh, what has been recommended by the Climate Change Commission. That's accurate, isn't it? Yeah, that's accurate. I think the Climate Change Commission have been suggesting 50,000 hectares goes in a year, but they want that to be 25,000 hectares of indigenous forest and 25,000 hectares of uh, exotic forest. Mm. So we've been tracking it around, I think it's about 46,000, 47,000 hectares per year when you average that out over over five years. So 
so yeah we're almost double what the climate change commission has been um wanting to see and bearing in mind as well, Julian, that uh, we are one of just a few countries in the world that actually does you know, allow the uh, the fossil fuel emitters to actually offset their emissions 100%. And uh, you can see clearly why New Zealand's a carrot for for uh, for some of these companies. Yeah, exactly. This is the concern. Is when you're one of the only countries in the world that can offset 100% of the emissions and the other country is Kazakhstan, um, it just doesn't put the incentives in the right place for fossil fuel emitters to actually go about um, reducing their emissions. They can simply offset them by buying a farm and there's no limits in place at all on how much offsetting can occur. So again, nearly every other country in the world has a, a sort of a maximum of about 5 or 10% of your emissions can be offset with trees. In New Zealand, you can offset 100% of your emissions with trees. So we really want to see urgently some limits put on that. Yeah, you're right, uh, pointing out that Kazakhstan is the only country. I said a handful of countries. It is only two, and it's New Zealand and, uh, and, and Kazakhstan there. And, of course, what happens is the effect that it has on rural communities, uh, not to mention, you know, uh, the export income, the food production, all these sorts of things. But uh, one of the constant things we hear, Julian, is that talk of uh, these rural communities just uh, battling and suffering as a result because you take the farms away, then you take, uh, that's obviously, then goes the schools and the rugby clubs and the community groups and all these sorts of things. So it has a quite a significant knock-on effect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it ends up affecting all of us um, because, as you point out, if food production starts to drop out, then our food prices continue to go up. If our export revenue drops, then we have to find some other way to pay for our health system and our education system. Uh, and then the impact on rural communities is exactly like you say, we're seeing... You know, as families drop out, as it sells uh, into forestry, then you have less children for the school bus, so then the school bus starts, stops running. You have less of those support services in the area, and then you just get this hollowing out of communities, and, you know, we're seeing and hearing it as well up and down the country. Uh, so, I mean, it really does feel like a, a kind of a tipping point in New Zealand or a really changing changing of the guard as we watch this land use change just rip through the country. Very much so. And of course, it's not to say that, uh, you know, having this discussion is an anti-forestry discussion because it's not. And uh, look, if you look at production forestry and you've got carbon forestry as well, uh, there have been examples of people integrating uh, these aspects into sheep and beef farms without the loss of food production. So it can be done. There's a mixed model approach here that would seem to me, uh, Julian, to probably be... uh, a much more favourable way to progress forward. Yeah, we're we're really clear on that. We're not anti-forestry at all, and we know that many of our farmers are looking to integrate um, trees onto farms. And I would just point out that um, 25% of New Zealand's indigenous forests are currently on sheep and beef farms, um, so not anti-forestry at all. And we know that um, you know Maori landowners have had many uh, reasons that they haven't been able to develop their land in the past, whether it's legislative or financial constraints that have been put on their land. So we know that they see um, forestry as a uh, as a means, carbon forestry potentially as a means for developing their land and looking after their people. So we, we see absolutely there's a the right time and the right place. Uh, it can be um, a really positive outcome, but we just need to see limits on the overall amount. Uh, of offsetting that is occurring. And that is the message from Beef and Lamb to, uh, I guess, the government and uh, any potential politicians that might find themselves in the seats of power in the months to come is uh, to just, you know, proceed with a bit of caution and uh, work with the sector before this gets completely out of hand? Yeah, exactly. You've put it well. I mean, we know 
history's shown us that farmers and communities are good at finding answers to challenges and they're particularly good at observing and learning from what hasn't worked in the past so we would definitely encourage the government to work with us work with the sector to find solutions Interesting stuff uh, and Julian really do appreciate your time outlining some of the key aspects of it for us on the show thank you very much indeed for your time Brilliant, thanks for having me Rural Focus, brought to you by Carter's Tyres Specialists in Ag Tyres supporting NZ Farmers for 35 years All right, well, farmer confidence has hit a new record low. Uh, Federated Farmers President Wayne Langford is saying that a recent survey of over 1,000 dairy, sheep, beef and arable farmers has found confidence is at historic lows, which is not great news at all. Farmers, he says, are dealing with a lot at the moment. They've got high interest rates, huge inflation. There's a steep decline in meat and milk prices. And uh, there's also unprecedented levels of regulatory change that's heaping on the costs and undermining profitability and all of that creates uncertainty for farmers. I guess the concerning part about this is the survey was conducted in July of this year and that was prior to Fonterra's announcement last week that uh, they're slashing a dollar from the 23-24 forecast milk price. And uh, I can tell you that the four biggest concerns for farmers, they are debt, interest in banks, regulation and compliance costs and climate change and ETS policy. They are the four big ones for farmers at the moment. Let's end on a positive note though. Uh, the solar winter has ended. Our good mate Phil Duncan at Weather Watch has come through with this news. The solar winter is over. That is the three months of the year with the least amount of available sunlight. The shortest day of the year of the winter solstice. That was on June 22nd this year. Six weeks either side of that date. The shortest days with the least amount of sunlight that means the solar winter technically ended this year August the 3rd that was last weekend small blessings gotta take them uh, that is the show for today as always great to have your company we'll catch you back tomorrow Rex today with NetSpeed internet solutions for everyone and their dog